HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of The Grape Nation is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com backslash heritage to stock up. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control. And so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Mark Oldman. We'll talk to Mark about, of course, wine, how to drink like a billionaire, and trust me, a lot more. For our weekly wine sip, we'll taste the 2005 Burgundy from a legendary rock star's collection, courtesy of Mark. So there's a lot to talk about there. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Mark Oldman is an award-winning author, internet entrepreneur, speaker, and wine expert. You can find Mark speaking at major wine and food festivals around the country, injecting his own style, humor, and wine expertise. Mark is also a graduate, which he's very proud of, and a board member of Stanford University. 
Now, most people graduate with a BA. Mark left with a BA, I think an MA, and a JD, his Juris Doctorate. And he now teaches a course in entrepreneurship, of which he has a good background in that. Mark's current book, which we'll talk about, is How to Drink Like a Billionaire, Mastering Wine with Joie Duvoui. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Mark. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here. Thank you for coming in. Uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about, but, be first, but before we get into everything, I want you to give my listeners a little context. Tell us about your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which you have a current you know, award-winning book. You're out on the speaking circuit. You'll be in Aspen um, in a couple of weeks. So give us a ramp up. Well... I guess you could say it all started, uh, I'm a Jersey guy, and when I was growing up in New Jersey, uh, my parents were pretty permissive about alcohol, and in fact, my mom, we used to get a little bit of beer delivered to the house, <laughs> and my mom had me choose the beer, and I, of course, with my, my cultivated palate as a 15, 16-year-old, <laughs> I chose Moosehead. Okay. <laughs> they don't even make that anymore. Uh, well, I think you can still get Maybe. it. And in fact, I still kind of have a taste for it, even though it's not considered an elevated beer. Um, but it is Canadian and it's cool. And we'll talk about those things later. Um, so then I got to college and uh, did a study abroad program uh, at, in Oxford. Stanford does a program in Oxford and um, saw that there was a wine club <laughs> in Oxford. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, I don't know anything about wine, but um, maybe I'll just attend. And I attended with a friend. And they they take themselves really seriously. Uh, it's called the uh, Oxford Wine Circle. And at the time, it was run by the most snooty type of Brit there is, and that is an American. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's there, unusual. There's, well, he was, I, maybe he was a Rhodes Scholar, but he was studying over there. And there's no one more British than <laughs> someone who's trying to be British. So anyway, uh, we were the ugly Americans. We knew nothing about wine. They let us sit in on the first tasting. And uh, I, I remember uh, I was copping down. It was a blind tasting, 45 minutes. And I was copping down. I was sitting next to the former president. And he had an answer key. And I'm just thinking, well, this will be a good basis to start to learn about wine since I know nothing. And I wrote down each wine and um, they assured us we would not be participating. We were just kind of like auditing the, the blind tasting. But then after the room went around and said which wines they thought these were, they went to me and they were like, okay, Mr. American, well, what kind of wine do you think this is? And I couldn't believe it. I was put on the spot, whatever, whatever. So I looked down at the notes I took, which was Wait, so the answer key had the answers. Yes. I don't want to use the word cheating, but you were basically looking at the answers in advance. Yes. Uh, okay. I, I Continue, did, but I, please. I, I, and and I, I didn't do that with the intention of cheating. Okay. But <laughs> when they put me on the spot, I'm like, well, um, you know, I kind of furrowed my brow. And I was like, <laughs> well, could this be... Um, Sancerre, uh, Left Bank Loire, um, 87. And their mouths went agape. 
And I, I ended up getting about 75% of the wines right, which if you know in blind tasting, that's much better than the biggest expert does. So they were like, oh my God, we've got a ringer. We've got to let him on the team. <laughs> and needless to say, I disappointed them every week after. I, I couldn't match that initial success at all. But it was the, the, the embarrassment of still being on the team. I, they didn't allow me to participate. But that then pushed me to buy books on wine. I bought Jancis Robinson's. It's called Master Class. No, Master Glass. And um, I started learning about wine. Got back to Stanford. And I'm like, you know what? I want to create a uh, wine club that's not competitive like the Oxford Club. Oxford actually plays a blind taste against Cambridge in something they call the Harvey Cup. Serious, deep, dark, wine weenie stuff. I'm like... (laughs) I just want a reason for people to learn about wine. And since we're relatively close to Napa and Sonoma, so I started the Stanford Wine Circle. And uh, I thought we'd actually have to pay these wineries to come in. And instead, um, and in fact, I took dues, which I later used to create really cool custom wine glasses, Stanford Wine Circle glasses, <laughs> that some people still have to this day. But, you know, I'd call up these various wineries, like let's say um, Behringer, Tim Hanai, the master of wine, who was then working for Behringer. He was like, you know, well, what day do you want me in? How many bottles of my $80 Easy. mountain grown beautiful Behringer Cabernet should I bring? Wow. So I ran about 30, 40 of these tastings. Um, everyone came in. Uh, Paul Draper from Ridge, uh, Jim Clendenin from Aubon Climat, Donine Dyer, who then was one of the few female winemakers, then at Domaine Chandon. And I learned so much about wine. And then um, I learned from that, and I started teaching. Uh, I uh, After um, my... Um, I got a master's at Stanford, as, as you mentioned, and after, before my final year, um, I was back in New York, and I'm like, I want to teach a wine seminar in New York, and in, I guess, an entrepreneurial way, I looked in the back of Zagat, and, um, you know, I, that was my Bible. I have a feeling it was yours, too. Uh, it was I, the only game, sort of. Yeah, it really was, yeah. and and startled, bracingly accurate, um, yeah. and very trustworthy. And so I looked at award-winning wine lists, and I literally <clears throat> tramped around in the summer heat to every one of those restaurants, and I'm like, can I teach a beginning wine tasting seminar? What year is this? This was uh, 1990. Okay. Uh, and, and every one of them who met with me were like, good idea, kid, but we'd make more money selling wine directly to... Uh, diners. Then I hit, do you remember the Soho Kitchen and Bar? I do. So it was had the giant Cruvenet machine, 100 wines by the glass, real estate impresario Tony Goldman took a meeting with me. I still remember there was a Cubist painting of him over his <laughs> desk. And I, I, he was like, hmm, so you're telling me you would teach it, you would market it, and I'll provide the room. We have an empty cabaret room, and I'll provide the wine that you pick out. And I'm like, yes. He's like, pure. I like this idea. This is a good idea. And we were off to the races. We were packed from the get-go. I went around Soho. I taped flyers up on poles. You could do that then. Um, uh, Three years later, I got a letter from the sanitation department, but it did take a long time to to catch up. And uh, so that's how I got my start teaching in wine. And um, then uh, when I graduated from Stanford, I teamed with a a friend, um, 
uh, from my freshman dorm, we were kind of troublemakers together. And uh, we started a, a company. Um, well, first we wrote a book on internships. Right. A kind of a selective guide. Like, t- I was always inspired by Zagat. So I'm like, what if we did a Zagat-like guide for internships? So uh, like how to get good ones and what to do and totally. not waste the opportunity. Yes. And actual internships, whether it's Boeing or the Academy of TV Arts and Sciences, you name it, Microsoft, the White House, Nightline. And uh, we, it was called America's Top Internships. And we didn't even have an agent. But we, again, you know, if you knock on doors, sometimes you can make things happen. I know you have a very strong background in sales and marketing, so you, you understand those instincts. Uh, knock on that door. <laughs> you got to sometime. And uh, so we wrote two books. I was deferred at law school. I ended up going to law school, uh, mostly just to be back at my beloved Stanford. And then um, um, when I graduated from law school and Samer was a consultant at the time, we're like, let's take this idea of unpacking, unraveling companies about internships and just apply it to jobs in general. So we started vault.com, which is like, I mean, again, it's that Zagat people, you know, the Vox Populi, the voice of the people, quotes strung together about working at Fortune 1000 companies and law firms and consulting firms. And That's in 98 about, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Boy, you're good. Yeah. Uh, 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 98. I like that. <laughs> Notes. Uh, yeah. Well, but, you know, I, I didn't think I've ever laid it out uh, that well. But so... So we started that, and then, I mean, we rode that, uh, I mean, it was a roller coaster for 11, 12 years. And after, you know, 9-11 and the recession, to keep my sanity, I approached the people I used to teach wine at. Now it was the Wall Street Kitchen and Bar, and I asked if I, we can reform the team, and I would just teach wine at night. And that got me back into teaching about wine. And then eventually that led to my first book, which was Oldman's uh, Guide to Outsmarting Wine. Then the second book, Brave New World of Wine. And then and now we have uh, Drink Like a Billionaire. So 2005, first book, 2010, Brave New World. And How to Drink Like a Billionaire came out, what, late 16, 17? Exactly. Okay, so that's where we're at now. All right, so... You also seriously start speaking in yes. the late 2000s, which is a big vocation of yours. Yes. How did that come about? That is very true. Well, um, you know, I remember, and this is something I, I've, I've never divulged, but there's something about you, Sam, that makes me... what Open you're, up, you're, baby. You're, I, I, I don't go to a psychologist, <laughs> but maybe I should. Lie but, down. But, but, but in your eyes, you have those kind eyes. So anyway... Uh, uh, I uh, not to be too nerdy, but I was president of my Jersey High School National Honor Society, and they asked me to give a speech on character. And <laughs> back then, those raspberry wine coolers were really popular. Oof. So I had two before my talk, and I guess the talk went well because parents asked for copies of the speech. But I began that talk. I swear to you, as an 18-year-old New Jersey guy who knew nothing about wine, uh, when they say a wine has character, comma, blah, 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 blah. So not only was I uh, was that powered by Calvin's strawberry wine coolers, <laughs> which, uh, you know... Uh, served its purpose. Served its purpose. And I'm big all on high-low. 
You know, <laughs> right. I, I, I will never criticize anyone's beverage choices. It's, it's, it's a very personal thing. So, wait, did I answer the question? Uh, what, what was it? Something about... I don't remember. Uh, I'm supposed to remember. It, well, it, it brought me back to high school. I forgot. So we'll move uh, on. All right. I have a curiosity. Please. Because the vault.com oh, was... Oh, speaking. Spe- oh, right. You, in so about 2009, I, I mean, you, you did classes and spoke in front of people, but a career kind of launched from that point on. and, and it's, It really did. But honestly, I it never knew... It was that knew. thing, that strawberry wine thing? That's the well, story? Well, <laughs> that showed me okay. when the parents asked for a copy of the speech, I'm like, well, maybe, they cared. I, maybe I'm okay they at, cared. at this public speaking thing. I had no idea. They cared. But, but to me, I actually feel more comfortable doing that than not doing it. Mm. So I'm, I tell people I'm miswired, where it's most people's greatest fear... Greatest My wires fear. got crossed on that, where it makes me even happier in life. You're, you're lucky that way. All right, so you, fu- you founded Vault.com. What I'm curious about is, you know, the wine thing was sort of percolating in you. Why do you go in that direction and not, you know, wine? Why don't you just throw it out for a year or two and see where the wine thing brings you? Because you rode the Vault thing for yeah. 10 years. I assume you made some money selling it. What, why, why not? Because you eventually landed. Well, so it was somewhat simultaneously. So I reignited the wine stuff while I was still running Vault. Okay. And by the way, you could talk to my girlfriends at the time. You don't, you're not a great boyfriend when, when, you're, when you're that busy. No. Ask Gary Vaynerchuk. Startup. You're, you're, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're uh, uh, co-collaborator. Co-collaborator. Right. Um, but... Um, uh, what did we say? Well, sorry. <laughs> why? Why with Vault? Oh, you chose to do you yeah. know that for a long time and not wine hardcore. Uh, well, and then the obvious follow up question good is: question. When yeah. did the wine thing sort of clarify and you right. know it was off to the races? Then it was only after writing the first book, and the first book did well despite my publisher's very low expectations. <laughs> Penguin, um, I, I was lucky to get a bunch of offers because I think they saw a real, true, authentic passion about wine and about teaching people. But I tell people, uh, Penguin, the publisher, modeled it like a Celtic poetry book. Their expectations were so low and, and accompanying marketing, but every author says that, but th- this was truly low, that um, when it actually did very well, they couldn't believe it. And they were, well, first of all, they didn't even know what they were getting. They just knew that I, we had signed for a wine book. But that then gave me the confidence. I was still doing Vault, and I had to devote all of my daytime hours to that. But that gave me the confidence and started getting me known in the wine world. And took, what, a year, year and a half to write the book? Yeah, yeah, it was, a, you know, it was about typical. a year. I, I have a bad back, and I think <laughs> that led to it. <laughs> there you go. Um, one last thing about what you were doing then. Were there any elements of sort of the whole entrepreneur, entrepreneurship wine that had any effect or influence on how you look at wine? Completely. That's how? such a good question. How? Well, I say my forte is unraveling complex <clears throat> systems. Whether So with, with Vault, we were doing it with jobs. This is hard to get information, company culture information. How are women treated at IBM in Chicago versus New York versus LA? How are Goldman Sachs people being compensated in this office versus that office? Similarly with wine, 
There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of needless um, information. I think what I learn in law school and what I'm just good at naturally is is tearing out the information people don't need to know. And I'm looking for that in art and in music. Right. Like I, I appreciate informational sources that just, they don't talk down to you. They give you best information, but they know what not to give you. And um, I think uh, that kind of assemblage of information and then making it fun and lively and entertaining. Um, We did that with Vault, um, but I hopefully do it even more with wine. I think so. All right, so let's let's talk about wine and let's talk about your current book, We'll Weave Everything In, How to Drink Like a Billionaire, Mastering Wine with Joie de Vouille. Um... I think for me, the best way to start it off is you emphatically state price is not necessarily proportionate to deliciousness. Delicious is one of my favorite descriptors of wine. (laughs) If a wine's delicious, who cares if it's slaty, stony, minerally, black kearney or whatever. So explain, because basically you're saying money doesn't correspond to the best wines. And this is where... You're the best guest because my listeners want the takeaway of why that matters and what they should do with it. It's so important. And you're right. I made it chapter number one because it's fundamental. And most of my friends who are not into wine still don't get that. Uh, So after a certain price point, depending on the grape, you know this, um, you're paying less for the intrinsic quality and more for things like marketing or that the winery wants you to perceive the wine as more valuable. Now, see here, I'm probably unusual in the world of wine, and, and and this is kind of a theme throughout my life. I'm a Jersey guy, but I love Dom Perignon sometimes too. So I'm very high-low in my tastes, pop culture, uh, you know, high-end stuff, you name it. And I do think with wine, um, nothing makes us wine lovers, are the, we, we grape nuts, happier than finding that $15 that drinks like a $30 or $40 bottle or a $50 bottle. But I must say, I love, especially when someone else is paying, I love expensive wine too, because the best expensive wine, I do think, and you know, Stanford Business School has done studies where you register more pleasure in your brain when you think you're drinking something really, really special and expensive. doesn't work for all wines, but I know that like, I kind of get excited in a certain way. So I'm always looking for the expensive wines that are worth their price. Right. So that sensory perception, if I had a cheaper and a more expensive wine, you knew them, I blinded them, lied to you, and told you, you could almost trick yourself that the good cheaper wine may be the better wine. Absolutely. Right? That's how that works. Yeah. Is there a sweet spot for price on the lower end? Is it 15? Is it 20? I mean, where are you satisfied, you know, through the years that if you lay down so much... It's such a good question. It depends on the grape type. So, for example, Pinot Noir is higher because it's such a labor-intensive grape. Um, Certain regions you're just going to pay more for uh, or certain grape uh, types. Um, But I'd say in general, uh, 15 to 25, uh, the midpoint is $20. I talk about it in How to Drink Like a Billionaire. 
Uh, and for most wine types, if you choose well, especially if you have a merchant who can like lead you to the promised land, you can get very delicious wines for 20 maybe $25. What might they lack that the 40 or $50 wine or more uh, might have? And, and that is uh, complexity, uh, the ability to smell and taste different things in the wine. Right. Uh, Nuance. Exactly. The, 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 but most people, and myself totally included, I'm just looking most of the time for that delicious 15 to $20 wine. So a place like Napa is tough because of everything you said, the land is expensive, the marketing, yes. you know, all that. But in Bordeaux, which is famous for expensive wines like Burgundy, there's all these great petite Bordeaux. Oh, my God, yeah. But that doesn't exist in much as much in Napa, right? Not as much. I call Napa the boardwalk and park place okay. of American That's wine. That's what I was getting to. And so I, don't, don't look there for all for the value. value. Okay. But... But I look there. See, another way, It's I guess it's not just high-low. It's I pivot to both sides. So people are like, well, you went, you did 10 years of schooling in California. You, you must love California wine. Wait, you live in New York. You must love European wine. I love both. And I love far beyond that. But Napa is where I cut my teeth. And right. I will always love from everything i've read you're very pro napa very very pro napa you, you know reverent of it you, you know yes. there's a lot of good wines and people and 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 they're wines that people just some too cool for school new yorkers dismiss it as well they all taste the same they're all big robert parker fruit bombs but that there's so much variation and especially now with the new generation of winemakers but a great tip a great nugget for your listeners is i talk about this in um how to drink like a billionaire is the what i call low buzz pioneers rather than going for the flavor of the month in napa consider um behringer consider reserve or even the the entry level robert mondavi uh consider um chapelet um, there are, you know, wine is so much like fashion and music. Once in restaurants, once the bloom comes off the rose a little bit, once the excitement dies down, the cool kids will will um, move on. And that's good for us because the prices will come down or they'll moderate. Right. And so I regularly drink um, low-buzz pioneers, the Napa work, workhorses, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean the fact that they uh, are no longer buzzy. But the dirty little secret is often they're privy to some of the best land. Let's say right. uh, Mondavi, the Tocalon Vineyard right. in, in Napa Valley. And that's where you get some of the best bang for your buck. Right. All right. So I, wanna, I want you to give us a quick billionaire primer on a bunch of these questions I'm going to throw at you. Oh, yeah. And let's not go too long on them. You know, let's buzz I'll through. I'll be pithy. People always wrestle with wine and food pairings. You know, yes. they think you can't drink red with fish. What's the overall direction you should put people in? Well, 
the true truly drinking like a billionaire means you don't care and if you do whatever tastes good to you that said weightiness is one consideration so if it's a really heavy wine uh, you might match it with a heavier food. If it's a really light wine, you might match it with a lighter food. So a Cab Cali would be a weighty. Uh, yes. A Pinot Noir, Bourguignon, maybe from France, would be lighter. So exactly. the weight, the feel, that's an important part. Yes. Besides even color or whatever. Yes. Okay. And, uh, you know, and there are other, I mean, this isn't so much a billionaire um, pairing idea, but the idea of... High acid wines, this is nothing new to wine people, but high acid wines cutting through richer foods. Right. Um, Give me an example. uh, Well, like a nice high acid champagne. I mean, champagne, I... Goes with everything. Goes with everything. Right. And and please, I mean, I've been sounding this klaxon horn for for the longest time. I tell people when they go on holiday, they need to do a a pH. BR pre hotel bubbly run. So it doesn't have to be champagne because that can be expensive. Get just a simple $15 Cava or American sparkling wine for every day of your vacation. Clear out the Toblerone from your mini bar. Right. Put a bottle in for each day of your holiday. It doesn't matter if you're staying at the Holiday Inn or Ramada Inn or the Four Seasons. Just clear out that. Put your bubbly in and drink a bottle each day, and your vacation will multiply in happiness. We are this show. We are big fans of champagne and sparkling wine, and it's under appreciated and under drunk, if there's such a word. It really is. All right, you earlier, not that long ago, you haven't been here that long. You talked about you know going to a merchant and talking to him. Um, I think you hit on something. Expand on that. So, how do you navigate? buying wine in a store. I think the obvious thing, and I'll set you up, is if you can identify a good merchant, how would you do that? And then what do you do when you get in there? Yeah, it's so true. And uh, in uh, my book, I talk, latest book, I talk about um, developing a wine spouse. And it's funny. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> well, it's kind of like a work spouse, which, by the way, uh, Vault, we used to do surveys on this at Vault, like a workplace romance. Should you have a work spouse? You know, someone that you're not committing any uh, intimate crimes with, but you can lean on it at work. And I think the equivalent should happen in wine shops. And boy, in cities like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles, Chicago, there are so many beautiful wine merchants who really have the love. And how do you tell? Well... Um, are they too dependent on scores? I mean, a little bit of uh, looking at scores I have no problem right. with. But, but you know, are, are they just using the canned shelf talkers? Or are they like an independent bookstore writing their own? Um, are the te- are wines the right temperature? Do they have a lively newsletter? Do the people really seem to want to help you without upselling you? Very important. Then... Let them know what you're interested in, what color, maybe it's both white and red, what style. If, if you know a little bit more about the style, maybe you like it really smooth, maybe you like your red, for example, very peppery, tell them. And to create that ongoing relationship, there's nothing they want more than to become your wine spouse. Give you the right reco. My God, the best reco ever. And and when then you're going to wine country, guess who you can call on and say, hey, can you get me those special insider tours? Wow. Good Contact to know. Contact your wine spouse. It's, it's a beautiful relationship. Good to know. Um, I, 
I couldn't figure this out with you. And the question is, do you believe in wine ratings? You just alluded to it. Like, good point. Yeah. If a store just relies on shelf talkers from magazines, you know, that's not very creative. But beyond that, are ratings important? I, I know they have, it's it's become more democratized it with has, the internet. Which is great. What's your feeling on wine ratings? I find if, if the underlying source is trustful, trustworthy and you feel like their palate is similar to yours similar enough at least um i use it because we live in this world of and it's only gotten worse but we're bombarded with too much information so we need so it's like the zagat shorthand that 30 or the 28 or the 21 back in the day when they used that system that didn't say at all and you definitely want the kind of commentary with it but it can be a useful shortcut because those who dismiss ratings out of hand, I mean, it's a little unrealistic because right. who is the time? To, I mean, people think that because I know about wine, when I go in a restaurant, I know most of the wines on a list. I know almost none of them. Right. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, how are we going to know? And But you're right. It, wine has become democratized. And I love using, you know, the Vivinos and I love following Psalms and I love uh, following other kind of wine passionate people. Right. But there is... A lot is of discovery and info out there. So much discovery. Yeah. Almost, too, almost right. too much. A little overwhelming. So you have to choose your favorites, right. really. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and we're going to take a break. We're talking to Mark Oldman. Mark's uh, current book is How to Drink Like a Billionaire, Mastering Wine with Joie d'Ouvry. Um, you said something that was interesting to me about 2% of the world's wines get better with aging. Yeah. And that leaves the other 98%, which you're basically implying that aging doesn't matter. You got to walk me through this. Like, Absolutely. how did you come to this? Uh, well, I mean, the actual percentage, you know, don't, 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 you know, there's nothing scientific except that in my years of talking with experts about wine, we all kind of agree that most wine does not get better with age. Most wine doesn't have that mysterious blend of the gum numbing tannins and the tingle on the tongue acidity. Um, and somehow the pedigree that actually not just makes it last throughout the years, but actually makes it improve. So you get those, it goes from more fruitiness to um, tertiary, as they say, not to get too fancy, but, <laughs> you know, it smells like uh, mushrooms or it right. smells like licorice or, you know, most wines are not made for that sort of longevity. So people get all freaked out. I mean, I know my dad who know who knew nothing about wine. He was a doctor and every now and then he'd get a bottle of wine as a gift and he'd put it in the basement uh, uh and he'd think that after 20 years it would get bet it was even better. Actually, I don't even think he thought about it that much. Right. <laughs> but just put it down there. Yeah, he just put it down Forgot there. Forgot about it for half the time and had a notion the other half. And it was almost always ruined, half because it wasn't ageable and half because of those New Jersey summer and winters. Right. The Didn't cork help. expanded and contracted and air got in the bottle. Exactly. But, you know, I, could I love California wines, too. And to your point, take a winemaker like Randy Dunn. Oh, yeah. You're not supposed to drink his wines unless you age them. 
does are there certain wines? Is that the other? You know, is that the the majority? Well, it's it's such a good point because when people are celebrating and go to restaurants, that's that you just made Sam one of the reasons to not order the really expensive wines in restaurants because those tend to be made for aging, and when they're made for aging, often not always, but often they start with this cloak of gum numbing tannin right. that needs years to come off. Uh, so what happens is people and, and restaurants usually can't afford having a lot of older vintages. It's inventory, too much space. space. So what you have is you have young, when you're paying a lot in restaurants, you have very young vintages of wine that was meant to be drunk older. So I say, don't even think about ordering. Not only is it a bad deal for reasons we could talk about, but it's not even made to be drinking this young. So you're better off at a restaurant, at least, um, drinking less expensive wines. So navigating a restaurant wine list in sommeliers, the takeaway from that is if you're looking at Bordeaux, Burgundy, even California, go with the more current vintages. Uh is usually, that sort of usually, usually. I mean, there are, there are a million exceptions. For but, value, I guess. Yeah. Let's say you're a banker out for value and, and well for taste. If you're a banker and you're out there thinking that that very young Napa cab that is notorious for needing a lot of years to age is going to taste good right out of the bottle, you might have another thing coming. Right. So just realize once again we're getting back to that fundamental fundamental point. More. Money after a certain point does not necessarily lead right. to more deliciousness. That, that's an important point. All right, Mark, we're going to take a break. Um, when we come back, I may have one or two more questions. Please. Then I want to subject you to our wine list. I want you to uh, tell us about some of your preferences. And then we're going to taste uh, the Getty Lee wine. Yeah. We're talking to Mark Oldman. And you're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. secret that I like being that person who always has some great wine on hand. When I know I've got a few bottles hanging around the kitchen, I feel like I'm ready for anything. If anything, is just because I never know when friends will drop by unannounced or because it's even just a Monday. I also hate that last minute run to the store. Wine was never meant to be bought in a hurry. It's funny how we have so much patience growing the grapes, aging the wine, only to feel pressured when you're staring at the shelf. I use Vivino to scan and keep track of my favorites. But lately, I've been stocking up through their web store. They have the best prices and largest online wine inventory, but can also give you personalized recommendations based on bottles you've liked in the past. And I use their premium service for unlimited free shipping. That's an extra bottle's worth of savings on every order. Plus, they have a 30-day free trial. I just grab a few at a time and save them from when the right moment rolls around. You never know when that'll be. Visit Vivino.com backslash Grape Nation to stock up.
All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Mark Oldman. Mark, before I subject you to our wine list, I just wanted to get your take on natural, organic, and biodynamic wine. I almost feel obligated because doing this show in Brooklyn, I always <laughs> right. say it's sort of like ground zero, you know, for natural wine. And it, it's it's happening and it's for real and there are great wines. But where do you check in on this? All right. Well, I'll address this briefly. Uh, A, I love the spirit behind it. And um, I think leaving the world a, a better place and um, not intervening when you don't have to. I just read an article on the great Burgundian Henri Jaillet, and even he in the 50s believed in not using pesticides and just a minimum of intervention. Um, and look where that got his beautiful, amazing, world record breaking now in terms of price right. wine. Uh, that said, um, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So I was in Brooklyn having dinner with um, real cool cats. Um, lucky for me, it was mostly women. And this one woman was amazing, sophisticated hairstylist who lived near the restaurant. And I, I looked at the list and I was, I was handed the list, being the wine guy, table full of seven people. And I just knew that they didn't want that sour beer taste that often comes with wine labeled as natural wine. And um, I was, I, but I didn't want to be the pontificating wine nerd. So when I was talking to the waiter, I'm like, which of these are like more smooth and not so earthy and not like, you know, not so natural wine tasting? And uh, he gave me a few choices, and they were out of all of them. <laughs> and after, now my table's angry. Now they're like, Mark, what are you doing? We've scrolled through this busy restaurant. We just want wine. So we had to go with, like, a very natural wine choice. And when he delivered it, the woman, the hairstylist, was like, oh, I've had this here before. I love it. It's natural wine. Like, it was like this... <laughs> Cool. She knew nothing about wine, but she knew natural was good. Everyone else at the table, and again, these are not wine people, but they're sophisticated people who like nice tastes. They turned up their nose like Pepe Le Pew, or or like like the cat in Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> right. <laughs> what an analogy! But so I just wish natural wine, the type I've had, more consistently tasted delicious and by the way the people out there who know the ones that do please email me let me know i'm i'm open to learning but you know at the end of the day virtue should not be subservient to deliciousness virtue should not uh compensate for a beautiful tasting wine and the analogy i give it's a little bit like art um, I feel like sometimes if art is too beautiful, and again, I'm just a neophyte with art, but I have friends who are art advisors and so forth. I think if art is too easy to love, if your grandmother in Peoria loves it, <laughs> a lot of the cognoscenti, a lot of the insiders, the hipsters don't want to love it. They want to love something a little more um, obscure. And I worry 
that certain natural wines are loved because they're trendy and because it's really good for the environment, which is very important. But my number one priority, <laughs> so long as they're not being really bad to the environment, is taste and deliciousness. I, I think that's all fair and reasonable. And I agree with you on a lot of those things. And as you solicited, I encourage if anyone wants to take it up with Mark, Uh-oh. we'll tell you at the end of the show um, how to get to him. Um, but it is an interesting topic. And, and I'm also afraid of crusaders for any cause. I, I agree. I, like, I, I, I think you kind of, you know, you hit it. You know, a crusader for any cause is just any cause. out there to crusade. You know, they're not even thinking about sometimes what they're crusading. Exactly. All right, let's move on. I want you to answer our wine list. It's a bunch of questions. Cool. We buzz through them. And they're pretty basic, but I keep a database and we post them and I'll post them on social media. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? Not right in front of us, okay. but are, are you trying things that are seasonal? Is there a region that, you know, you're a little more interested? Are you off your regular game? What's, what's now? Uh, oh, so a, n- a number of things. Um, uh, Viognier, I think Viognier is a great shoulder season. Tell white, people what Viognier white. is. Uh, well, that's a grape, um, and uh, what's amazing about it is it can smell tropical, um, but it's usually not from oak. It's usually from the natural aspect of the grape, and it's it's medium body. It's a great alternative for people who love a medium rich. Uh, type of white wine like Chardonnay, but maybe to, they don't want as much oak. And in France, you know, it's Condrieux uh, and even Chateau Grier, not to get too nerdy, but these are um, uh, great French leaner, more acidic sources of Viognier. So I love Viognier. Um, I've been drinking uh, low-budget Pioneers, um, uh, Napa. Give me a few. Well, I recently had Chapelet, and, and I just sat there. I, I, I was just going to have a one glass before going to sleep. <laughs> I, and and I, I have great discipline, but I, I'm like, this is so beautiful tasting. Uh, I wish more people knew about this. Like, they must be sitting on the most high-quality land. Be- well, they are. I think they're on Pritchard Hill or something. Yeah, the yeah, Chapelais, that sounds right. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for sure. All right, so Viognier is a good good seasonal wine. I mean, it's getting warmer, yes. an alternative to uh, Chardonnay. And what do you call them? Low? Uh, low Buzz Pioneers. Low Buzz Pioneers. So, so Chapelet is an example. Chapelet, Give me one more. Well, Robert Mondavi, Mondavi Behringer, Behringer. They've been around forever, and they're still they still have the moves. Right. All right, Mark Oldman's favorite wine and food pairing. Does one exist? Oh, my God, yes. There, there, there are so many. I'm going to give you ones. You can you give my, me a couple. Well, uh, so uh, sparkling rosé and let's up the ante. The, the <laughs> number one was Dom Perignon rosé with spare ribs. Mm. Oh, my God. Cuts through the grease and the, the sauce. We're talking saucy sparrows, right? Oh, saucy. Don't, uh, what did they say in History World Part 1? Don't get saucy, Bernays. There you go. <laughs> so champagne and ribs. Yeah, especially, ro- it could be any champagne, right. but but rosé, champagne. Rosé, right. I don't want to leave of, that out. Yeah. The, the pink of the ribs. With and the, the redness of the oh, sauce. Oh, my God. That's a good one. First the time on the, the show. Wine. 
All right. How about? And can I give you one more? Yes. Uh, okay. Um, uh, Chateau Ikem, which is a sweet dessert wine from France, Bordeaux. Yeah, drizzled on pancakes. So you are a fancy guy. <laughs> well, but I, I go remember. I like I, I do the low arts and I do the high arts. You I, can I do throw both. a coute on it if you have to or something. <laughs> yeah. So what Mark is saying is, um, uh, Ikeem is what? It's a it's a late harvest, late French, harvest French dessert dessert wine. wine. Right. Dessert wines are so troublingly out of fashion. So and you don't need Ikem. Ikem's just the world's right. template right. for the best. But you could have, a, for example, a Mondavi. You could have a. Um, so many Napa places make beautiful late artists. Dolce from Nickel and Nickel. Totally, I yeah. love Dolce. So that's a cool idea because it sort of got some thickness and unctuousness to it. Yeah. All right, that's the first time on the show too. Okay. Good. All right, you're you travel a lot, but you're a New Yorker hardcore. Yeah. So I guess the challenge here is give me at least one New York place and another place anywhere else. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar. You know, where they have the selection, the people, they get it. And I always say this. You're not going to leave anyone out. You're not going to incriminate anyone. Just what comes to mind. Sure. Well, last week I was at Aqua Grill um, in Soho. Been there a million years. million years. And you know what? There's a reason why certain things stand the test of time. Oysters are so beautiful. But that list, I don't know who... So Aqua Grill has a good list. They have a beautiful list and a very smart seafood-oriented list. I think I had an Albarino there uh, from the Galicia, Galicia (laughs) to you and me, region of Spain. And it was beautiful. Um, Batard, if we want to go high-end... Druni Perance, you know, famous wine, burgundy-named restaurants. Exactly. And you know what? I... I wasn't sure whether to believe the hype, and boy, did it it was borne out. And I'll tell you something really interesting. I had a Sauvignon Blanc, this is going to blow your mind, from Burgundy there. Who knew? I never knew. It's called Sombris, B-R-I-S, and it, I guess there's that one little region in Burgundy that's allowed to grow Sauvignon Blanc and, and it was had it. they had it and it was, this was the mischief of their amazing wine people there what about anything resonate out of New York let's see well uh, let's see in LA I love AOC AOC okay. uh, which is beautiful give me one more you don't have to make a long list. yeah uh, let's see anywhere okay uh, um in Paris, I like to drink. Can I uh, do whatever you want? I'll, uh, you know, it's just so hard. It's like a million. What were you going to ask are, me? Can I what? Be excused uh, to the men's room? Actually, can I go back to New York? Yes, because because yeah, New yeah, York yeah, yeah. is no really here. really what I what I know well. Dewat, the Indian restaurant. This is something. D A W A T. Yeah. So Where is Midtown. That? Midtown. It's an old workhorse. And of they a, have a good wine list. They don't. They don't. But their corkage is about fifteen dollars. So there's your B Y L. Yes, and I with go good in. Food. I go in with beautiful rose sparkling, and it's often American sparkling wine, and they're charging me fifteen bucks, and it is samosa heaven. 
There you go. That's rosé. That's the first one on the show too. All right. So the next question, and I'm not going to let you say 1962 uh, Romani Conti Latash. What's your favorite all time <laughs> wine? <laughs> well, that okay. Um, now I'm going to sound. I, I mean this in the least pompous way, but that's and, a setup. Well, all I'll say is. I recommend everyone to find friends who, with great taste in wine and great generosity. And I'm lucky in that I have some of these friends who share great wine with me. So, Latash, I'll just quickly buzz through that. 62, 78. And by the way, I asked this friend who's in his 80s and the most humble, sweet man, not these type of people you read about with Rudy, the wine counterfeiter. He's the exact opposite. Who my former guest and your friend Peter Hellman wrote wrote a very and amazing in-depth book about Rudy Kernowayan, who was a wine counterfeiter. In vino duplicitas, the name of the book. I love it. But uh, I once asked my my wine mentor, this Burgundy mentor, uh, we, we had just, uh, he had shared with many people some 78 Latash, and I naively asked, well, how many bottles more do you have of this? And in the most humble way, and he's in his 80s, he said, well, we have 24 more cases. <laughs> and he paused, and he goes, and we're drinking them as fast as we can. Because, you know, he's a little older, but the most generous. And by the way, there's a reason why wine has five or four servings in it. It's to share. And I I know you have this spirit, too. And this is why we're in it and why we love it. It's to share with people. And no one has taught me this more than these uh, wine mentors. So these Latashes, 59 Jaye Richborg, absolutely off the charts for this Wine mentor, what most expensive wine I ever bought, 37 Ekem, which is a uh, the, the, the dessert wine, what which was, was brown? his favorite. It was perfect. It was so good. It was crazy. Imagine. And a $15 Sauvignon Blanc from the Brander Winery. It was a sunny day. Brander, B-R-A-N-D-E-R? Yeah. Where? U.S., Australia, uh, in, New uh, Zealand? Sa- uh, Santa Barbara. Santa and Barbara. I was with some friends because you know wine is so contextual. I was with some friends. The winemaker didn't know I was in wine. I didn't announce it. He came out. He shared some freshly caught trout with his beautiful $15 Sauvignon Blanc. And I think about that probably once a week. So... That leads into my next and last question, which has nothing to do with what you just said and even the book. It's, it's all about my listeners. And the question is, and you're very well equipped to answer, give me your best wine around 15 bucks. Give me a red and a white. Okay. You can give me specific brands, regions, grapes. You know, you could say muscadet, whatever. I think you could do a good job here. So yeah. give me a couple of each. Yeah, let, let me get a few out of the way. So Muscadet, white wine, that's obligatory. Beaujolais Cru, like a, a Moulin Avon or Bruyere uh, with red wine. Uh, and he, I know they've gotten expensive. Help me with that. Moulin Avon is... Oh, Moulin Avon... Uh, is it the maker or an area? One of the 10... Crew right. Beaujolais. Morgon, it's an area. Is that one of the more value areas? Not so much value, but consistently delicious. So okay. if you find, uh, you know, I, it's they rarely, you know, I think of every wine not just in terms of the deliciousness of a particular bottle, but 
what's the reliability factor? And you know, when, and when I'm in a restaurant and it, they seem to be overcharging, I will go with a Cru Beaujolais, which is a lighter style red wine. I agree. So I don't even need to know the producer, but it it will be labeled Morgan or Bruyere right. or Santa Amour. Or so red, you're saying Cru Beaujolais. White, you're saying Muscadet. Give me one more. Of okay, each. okay. So Verdejo, uh, for Spanish Let's white. Let's spell it V E R D E J O. I think there's not H O. Uh, well, that's a different. That's Verdejo. Okay, so Verdejo <laughs> wine's hard, people. So Verdejo from from uh, the Rueda region in northern Spain. Okay, and that white. is white, not oaked up, crisp, but interesting mm. and medium bodied. I'm obsessed with it. Um, and then something a little less known uh, would be a dry Portuguese red. Let me state it here. I think the Portuguese, I love them, but they don't know how to market their wines, and their inability to market is our value. The beautiful... 15, so give, me, give me a good red. Give me a maker uh, and the grape. Well, the grapes are difficult, and they're local. And all I know is Quinta de Crasto recently, I had their entry level, which was at about $15. And it was complex and beautiful. It smelled like mocha. Mm. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to post all of those because those are great recos. Um, Admirable job. Thank you, sir. I knew you would do that. Thank you. Um, We're going to wrap up the show. But before we do that, we're going to get to the fun part. We still have a little work left to do. Yes. Um, Every week, we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip this week. We'll taste a 2005 Burgundy from the collection of legendary voice and bassist Getty Lee of Rush. Mark acquired this wine at an auction. It turns out Getty's a big uh, collector. Oh, right. yeah. So, Mark, off to the races. Tell us more about the situation, the wine, you know, what we're drinking, and then we'll evaluate it, color, palette, descriptors. Awesome. Well, I'm a huge Rush fan, um, and we've all come out of the closet. We Rush fans, a- <laughs> after their documentary, uh, it was uncool to like Rush, even though I, I always True. have. Um, but uh, uh, let me say, they're not the typical rock stars. They are the most thoughtful, kind of intelligent. They do hard rock, but it's incredible. And both Getty and Alex. So Getty, the the bassist, keyboardist, vocalist, and Alex Lifeson, the uh, amazing guitarist. They're both huge grape nuts. They're totally knowledgeable. When I did my first book, I interviewed all sorts of famous wine lovers, famous people who happen to be wine lovers. Getty Lee was one of them. And I'll never forget his assistant, this amazing woman named Peggy. Not so much assistant, but kind of like their CFO. Um, was like, he would love to tell you about his preferences in wine, but can he have a week? Because <laughs> with everything he does, including music, he needs to look at it from all sides. Heavy He's, guy. He really is. And, and a caring, intelligent guy. And he put together the most amazing, not all of it fit into the book, but one of his great passions is red burgundy. And I saw that part of his stash I guess, you know, we wine lovers, we buy too much wine. So part of it came up at auction, and I was there with my paddle in the air. When was this? This was earlier this year. Recently? Yeah, it was a Zaki's auction. And just curious, because I had no idea, how did you know about it, just from knowing the guys before? 
Uh, yes, and I think I was just like I looked up Rush News and like somewhere like oh some of Getty's wine. Luckily, I got to interview Getty and Alex, right. and so I knew that their taste was impeccable. So right, so let's talk about the wine. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, two thousand five, good vintage year, Mark. Incredible right. Burgundy. So we're off to the races with a good vintage year. Yes. Now tell me specifically about this wine. Okay. So you know, Sam, red Burgundy is Pinot Noir. Right. And the world template, a lot of people would say, even Sonoma and Oregon winemakers of, of Pinot Noir would say it all goes back to Burgundy. So the best entry level, and doesn't mean it's going to be cheap. In fact, great bottles or really good bottles of Burgundy start at 80 a bottle and upwards, uh, sometimes hundreds or even thousands because of supply and demand. There's, there's just too much demand and too little supply. But this Getty sourced, and if you look at the label, first of all, it says the Hospice de Bone. Which is a fundraiser charity thing? Totally. 150 right. years old. They have about 800 barrels. And I read that uh, Getty bought about five of these barrels, but he was very methodical and sharp about it. He bought it in this amazing year where there was a lot of sun, evenly ripening grapes. So the Pinot Noir for this region known for its mercurial weather, the, the grapes are going to ripen beautifully. And then it's from Volnay. Volnay is one of the great starter regions because... So that's what you were alluding to. Yes. Thank you. A, a, a better... A good entry level for Burgundy value is Volnay. Yes. Okay. And not only value, but the taste. Because certain regions, Got it all. like Pomard, they can be bitter, um, especially when young, what, what we the were talking about. The characteristics of Volnay are, are, are good. Sometimes, it's a delicious wine. Yeah. Well, they tend to be more feminine, uh, kind of more floral or aromatic smells like flowers all right so let's let's get let's into this wine it. all right so we're gonna start with color first yes it's got that beautiful <sighs> burgundy purple teeny bit cloudy i don't know if that's unfiltered or aged tell me about that part yeah i can't so this uh negociant so the person who bought the grapes and actually elevated elevage raised the wine vinified it and put it into oak barrels is this really cool micro negociant called uh, Lucien Lemoine. He's actually. Uh, I know the name. Yeah, and he's uh, uh, making great uh, waves in a good way in Burgundy. He's a Lebanese gentleman and um, just a hot negociant. So he's known for making wines of intensity, and I think that's what, probably why Getty chose um, him. Okay. Uh, and um, so, yeah, you, it's not as light as certain burgundies, right. which is... It's, it's, it, color-wise, and, you know, it's got a little of that, you know, haziness, which I like. Yeah. Let's go nose. Okay, so let's, the nose. What and, I want to do is I want to give it a sniff, and then I want to throw it over the tongue. But let's tell people what we're smelling, okay? And by the way, can I show you a little trick I tell my yes. classes about? So when I swirl my wine to smell it... I put a lid on it. I talk about this you, in How to Drink Like a Billionaire. You put your hand over it while you're swirling? Yes. While I'm swirling. It's inelegant, but it, it doubles the smell. It traps the smell, traps and then the smell. you get that schnoz in there. <laughs> yes. Trap the smell, schnoz it up. All right. So what are we getting on the nose? I'm wow. leaving this to you. Okay. So I it was a little cold when I brought it because I wanted it to survive the- Good temperature now. Yeah. It's nice temperature. What do you get on the nose? 
Well, I get, first of all, like violets, like a floral smell. And then I get maybe some baking spices. Maybe that's from some contact with oak barrels. But it's kind of a beautiful, sweet spice mm-hmm. smell to it. But it's quite fruit forward. I do get like f- beautiful, fresh. Stay with the nose. Yeah, Don't red grapes. Uh, I was going to say thrown in the mouth, but you not know what? Yet. How do you know? Because I, I want you to go to mouthfeel. Okay, okay. So wait, let me let me really unpack this. Rather than like an older burgundy, which can smell like Asian spices and soy sauce and underbrush, forest right. floor, this is more fruit forward with beautiful raspberries and this kind of maybe even red blue, fruit. yeah, red fruit and maybe even a little blue fruit like right. blueberries. What, what do you think? I agree with that. Okay. I, I get a little of the spice. Yeah. Um, definitely the red fruit. It's got the body and the, the a little blue fruit, you know, goes, yeah. comes out. Um, on the mouthfeel, it's definitely medium, mm. medium plus. It's not a light thin burgundy it's right? not light but it's not a like big russian river you know high alcohol it's it's kind of a great middle ground and do you feel that tannin on the tongue i do feel the tannin mm. so there's a little years later yeah and I and like that. which means and i think this is what you're getting at sam it's built for longevity it's a 2005 now but you can sell her this at least another 10 years and it will get better maybe decades more all right now our favorite part the palate. Oh, yeah. A lot of the palate alludes, you know, to the nose. So what are we getting finally on the palate? And, you know, the palate is so important. Texture might be the most underrated aspect in a wine. So I get both a certain dryness, but not obtrusively so. Not like a over, uh, overly tannic Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a, it's a kind of... Um, a little dryness, but I also get a silkiness. Yeah. And some of the best red burgundy, this is a nugget to, for your listeners to know if they don't know it already, uh, has this kind of silky, velvety, it coats your tongue and the finish. The One of the reasons, and can I make a, I, I'm just occurring to me now, but <laughs> Getty Lee is a musician and so many musicians I've interviewed love wine. And I think it's because both wine and music is short-lived for the senses. So the Come better music, yeah, and the better music, the better wine stays with you longer. Not only on your tongue now for maybe a minute, but then you'll think about it tomorrow or in weeks to come. I agree. All right, we got to wrap up, but two more questions on the wine. Help me and answer quickly. Mm. Um, what's a good food pairing for this wine? Well, crispy roast chicken. I mean, that's okay. that's the perfect that's red, the red burgundy. I've got to throw some French fries in it and then get a poisse, the uh, stinky, but hopefully not too stinky cheese, cheese from burgundy. Okay. So those are good two pairings. And I always ask everyone this. Do we like this wine? I love this I wine. I love it. For a million different reasons. For the fact that you so brought it reasons. in, the fact that you thought out of the box, the fact that it was Getty Lee, the fact that it's an 05 Burgundy, the fact that it's Burgundy, <laughs> the fact that it's interesting. So I thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, so we love this wine. I'll post it. I'm even going to take a picture of the bottle. We'll put that on. All right. 
Mark Oldman, we're going to wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. I'm going to post Mark's wine list answers. I'm going to post our weekly wine sip, which was the 05 Getty Lee Volney. Um, I'll throw up a picture of that. Um, we'll put it on all our social media sites. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby. And now... You can follow hashtags, so please follow the Grape Nation. That's hashtag the Grape Nation. And on Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. Also, subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Mark, where can we find you on social media? Websites, give me everything. Book. Oh yeah, well, uh, you know, so my latest book is How to Drink Like a Billionaire. You can find that on Amazon and everywhere Good books are sold. Right? Blah blah blah. Uh, I'll be at the. I'll be doing. I think an unprecedented five seminars in the three days of the Aspen Food wow. and Wine Classic. Uh, in You're one of the faves there. Well, is I, it next week? Uh, it's like the. Oh, sorry, it's the week after next. So week. Aspen Food and Wine Festival. My Mark is one year. of the great fixtures there. He's he's overloaded this time. Well, I, I try to over in a good way, I, and and I try to over deliver. You know, if people are going to waste their time or seemingly waste their time reading my books or coming to my. Uh, Give them a good time. Events. I, I want to over deliver. All right. So tell me social. Instagram, oh, yeah. at website. Mark Oldman. Very at simple. Mark Oldman. M A R K O L D M A N. Don't trust those C's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, he's not Gary Oldham. Um, <laughs> and so that's Instagram. And the website, which is a pretty rich website, is uh, just markoldman.com. Okay. Um, if you want to know more about Mark, history, background, books good website it's done very well all right i want to thank our guest mark oldman uh author of how to drink like a billionaire mastering wine with joie de vie exactly and and you know what it's all about that joie let's just use wine to get more joie into our lives while we can so that's his booking get everywhere thank you to mark (laughs) thank you to our engineer vitor who got to to sip a little of this 05 we want to thank everyone at the heritage radio network i'm sam ben ruby and you've been listening to the grape nation for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.